God's plan for the renewal of heaven and earth is much like his plan described in the Old Testament. He is a refining fire that gives way to new growth, like in Isaiah 6.13 and elsewhere. This is how God's people overcome while under attack. I want to start by reading a scripture that is not in Revelation, but I think it has a connection. You can see it on the screens, but if you want to turn there, you can read it in your Bibles as well on your phone or your archaic printed paper Bibles. Welcome to the 21st century. No, those paper Bibles are really good to have. Psalm chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That entire scripture is full of such good promises, so many wonderful descriptions of how God cares for us, protects us, provides for us, and there's a, there's a prominent display of his power and authority when he tells you that I prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies, surrounded by your enemies, surrounded by those who would threaten you, harm you, steal from you, mock you, neglect you, reject you, and even kill you. God says, let's have a picnic. Let's sit down. I've prepared a table. Let's eat. You don't have to worry about them. You don't have to be afraid of them. Because while I'm here, we're having a meal, and they're not allowed to interrupt. And no, they can't have any. Unless they want to become my friend, then they can have some. But I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Let me give you the main point of today's sermon. It'll be on the screens. We have an invitation from Jesus to sit at the only table with real food. That might seem a little strange, a little cryptic. I know I just talked about the table that the Lord prepares for us in the presence of his enemies, but you're like, Revelation, the table, the only, what? We'll get there, trust me. But that's what I want running through our heads today. We have an invitation from Jesus to sit at the only table with real food. So you write that down, keep that in your mind. Let me transition us a bit into where we're at. We're in the book of Revelation. We're in week uh, three Ephesus, Smyrna. Now, yeah, week three. We're in week three, I think. Yeah, uh, cool. Someone will correct me later. We're in a few weeks into a seven-week mini-series inside of the book of Revelation, covering these letters that Jesus himself writes and gives to the apostle John to send out to churches, seven churches 
in what is now known as the modern-day geographical area, the nationality of Turkey. And these letters, you'll see it on the screen. I want us to remember this throughout these seven weeks. These letters were penned for them. They were written to them and for them, but they were preserved for us. Because what the Lord Jesus has to say to each and every one of those churches, he has to say to us. These letters contain a pattern, therefore, for all churches, a pattern of encouragement, a pattern of acknowledgement that it's Jesus who is speaking to us and we ought to lend, us, lend him our ears and that he has warnings and encouragements and commands and promises. And finally, these letters hold promises to those who prevail, to those who in the face of persecution, in the face of tyranny, in the face of tribulation and trial, in the face of whatever Satan or the world or even your own flesh throws up against you, if you will stick and stay with Jesus, if you will per persevere in your faith, believing and trusting God and obeying his commands, if you will overcome, there are promises that will be fulfilled, awards, rewards, victory the Lord has in store for you. Now, the last two weeks, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's, there's a pattern in each of these letters, right? There's a structure, and Jesus repeats that same structure in all seven of these letters. There's an introduction where Jesus goes, hey, remember, remember my description in chapter one, you know, golden sash, robe of the judge, sword coming out of my mouth, metal feet ready to stomp on stuff, right? He in the beginning of each of these letters, he introduces himself and co it correlates back to some aspect of this description of Jesus. They go, by the way, here's my feet. Oh, in this letter, you guys need to know I have a sword coming out of my mouth. Oh, in this letter, you need to know that I hold the keys to heaven and hell, Hades and hell. And then there's an assessment or an evaluation. He says, hey, I know what your situation is and I see how you are. Either it's great or I have something against you. I have a problem with how you are or what you're doing. And then he gives an exhortation. He gives a command, an encouragement. Now do this in light of who I am and what I've said about you and what you're facing. Now, if you'll do this, finally, then we'll get to a benediction or a conclusion, a promise. Listen to me. Let all the churches know, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, conquer in this way. This is what I offer. This is what I will give to those who overcome. There's a structure. And you'll see that pattern all the way through. So if you're going to read ahead, which I think, no, I don't think, I, I know you ought to do, go ahead and start reading this week. If you haven't begun already, start reading forward into some of these letters before I ever get to preaching it. Do some work, right? Do, do some work on that. And you'll see that pattern. If you'll see that pattern, maybe some of these things might, like before I even have to get up and say stuff, you might start to go, oh, oh. and then when I say it, you're like, already been there. I already knew that, Matt. Thanks. What else you got? I would love for us to be in that position. All right. With that said, let's get into today's text. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. This is the letter to the church in a city called Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. To the angel of the church, we covered this a few times in the last several weeks. The angel, this is two big basically competing main interpretations. It, either it's some angel, a guardian angel, like a legit angel, like, you know, cool robe, glowing, shining white, wings, all that sort of crazy stuff. I don't know. Or 
it's a fig, it's this figurative language possibly, meaning to, to the people of that church, to the, to the overarching character and personality of that church. And my question I've asked a few times is, what would the angel of our church be like, of Restoration City Church? Like, what, what would Jesus have to say to the angel, to, to the nature of who we as a people are, our membership, our leadership? What's our angel like? What's our personality like? And so he says to this church in Pergamum, here are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is going back, again, correlating to Jesus in, in Revelation chapter 1, where he says, and, and out, of, out of this guy's mouth, out of Jesus' mouth, is this sword. Let me tell you a little bit about that in a little while. Let me get to Pergamum. Pergamum. Everyone say that name. Pergamum. I know you could. I told people that I have the best church, the most advanced church, the most elite church. All they need to do is watch the video and see that you said a weird word in the Bible and you said it correctly. Great job. The city of Pergamum was a pantheon to the gods. So if you go to modern day Los Angeles, you can get on any number of tour buses and someone can take you around into the Hollywood Hills and the Beverly Hills and, and all sorts of neighborhoods and they'll show you, oh, this is where so-and-so lives and this is where so-and-so lives. Oh, there's Selena Gomez's house. There's Arnold Schwarzenegger's house. Like, they can take you on a tour of all these important influential people. In Pergamum, you could have done that. In fact, history seems to imply that there was a thriving tourism trade where people could, people could come and visit Pergamum and you could be taken around to all of the God's temples. Almost every major God that you can think of back in the Roman and Greek times had a temple, had some sort of shrine in Pergamum and people would go and say, oh, there's Zeus's temple. Ah, there's Demeter's temple. Oh, there's Persephone's temple. Oh, that sort of thing. Zeus, Demeter, Athena, Dionysus, Asclepios, the, the, the god of healing, the god of healing. That, that, so people would come to Pergamum and, and worship Asclepios's temple in hopes that they would be healed. Which, by the way, this god, his symbol, his personification was a staff with snakes intertwined. Linked to the idea for some reason that this was the god of healing. Which, by the way, if you look at in the medical field, if you know anything about like the, the, the medical doctor symbol, what do we got on there? Snakes, right? This goes back to ancient Greek and Roman mythology. Even, even temples to Caesar were here. Christians, Christians were supposed to bow down and worship these gods in order to be accepted in their society because people in their society, in their city believed if you didn't honor the gods, if any of us didn't honor the gods properly, something bad would happen because the gods would punish us. And so the Christians were troublemakers because they only believed in one God and we don't know who that guy is. We never heard of him before and he didn't have a big temple. They keep on saying they are his temple. And you know what? They're, they're really going to tick off our gods. In fact, if they don't worship Caesar, they're going to worship... They're, they're going to tick off Caesar big time, and Caesar might come and do something bad to us. And the Christians there were supposed to refuse to bow down, and that led to terrible persecution. You see that pattern? You're going to see that as basically a decision that the Christians in each of these seven churches are having to make. Worship and honor these gods. Worship and honor the cult of Rome and Caesar, or you'll be tossed into the wilderness. You have your stuff taken, You'll be fired from your job. You'll be kicked out of your house. You might be arrested. If you're a big enough problem, we may even kill you. We may sell your wife or kids into slavery. The problem, however, that we're going to see in this text, 
The problem, Jesus says, isn't that the church is in Pergamum, this difficult and terrible place, but that too much of Pergamum was in the church. The problem is not that the church is in Pergamum. There's a problem with the Pergamum being inside of the church. You see, the church in Pergamum, Jesus is going to accuse, they're being synchronistic. Synchronistic. These are people who are loving Jesus, and they won't worship and bow down to these gods openly. They won't do that. They won't put a pinch of incense on the altar. But they're the kind of church that is loving Jesus too. They're loving Jesus too. You're going to see that he's going to accuse them of being too accommodating and worldly. They wanted to try and fit in and be cool and be sophisticated and be accepted by their city while still being Christians. And Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell. It's where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I see where you're at. You keep praising my name. You keep trying to obey me. You're evangelizing. You're you're not worshiping these gods. You're sticking with my name. This is good. In fact, you, you didn't even start worshiping Caesar. You didn't offer the pinch of incense. Even when my faithful servant, your brother in the church, this guy named Antipas, was killed. He was killed among you. History tells us that Antipas wouldn't give into the culture. He wouldn't give into worshiping anyone or anyone else, anything or anyone else. And history tells us that this guy was punished by being put inside of a large bronze bowl, a sculpture of a bowl, and it was hollow inside. And they put him in, which, by the way, to compound the insult, the opening for him to enter the bowl was not in the front, but on the other side. He had to crawl in that way. They closed it up behind, behind him, locking him inside, and they put wood underneath him. And then what did they do? They roasted him alive. They burned him to death. Can you imagine you're in there? And at, you can't, there's nothing, no surface you can touch or sit on, and you just, you just get roasted. You get burnt alive. He says, I know where you are. You're in a bad place. You're in a wicked, sophisticated, big buffet of, of idolatry, of sin. Listen, in each and every one of these temples, part of worship to these pagan gods included something sexual. It included uh, priests and priestesses who were there to satisfy worshippers' sexual needs, their physical needs. And, and, and listen, all of this is terrible and wicked, and there's, there's, there's human sacrifice. There is idolatry. There's wickedness, and there's persecution. Jesus says, I know... You've held fast to my name, but, verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also some of you have, have been holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here's what, I, here's what I got against you. Some of you, some of you are loving me too. You're loving me too. Some amongst you, too many amongst you, are giving in and being synchronistic. Loving the world and trying to love Jesus at the same time. Jesus has something to say about that in his earthly ministry, right? About how many masters you can serve. How many masters is it? Just one. You, either, you say you got two masters, but you're going to end up, it's going to end up being revealed that you love one master and you actually hate the other master. But you're trying to keep both of them happy. And at some point, there's going to be a tipping point. And here's, here's, here's the problem with this. It's not a matter that Jesus goes, listen, there's, there's 100 people in your church. 
And some of you, we've passed the threshold. I, I, I could tolerate it when nine of you were heretics. I could, I could tolerate when nine of you were heretics and you were engaging in and, 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 and dabbling in like horoscopes and, 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 and your kid, you were letting your teenage kids at their sleepovers play with the Ouija board and stuff. You were taking the online test to find out, but like which of your favorite potatoes mean, indicates which house in Harry Potter's and Hogwarts you'd be in, right? Uh, great, but now there's 10 of you and you've crossed my threshold. No, that's not, a, that's not it. You're going to see, I'm going to, I'm going to, trust me, I'm going to explain, but the problem is they're letting it happen. It's not that it's happening, it's that the church, specifically the leaders, but the whole church body, not just the pastor, not just the pastors, but the church body isn't doing anything about it. Here's the big point. Here's the accusation in a sentence, and you'll see it on the screen. They were, and by the way, we are being seduced to sit at the wrong table. They were being seduced, just like we in our life today, we're being seduced as they were to sit at the wrong table. They were, love, they were trying to love Jesus too. There's all these tables with all sorts of buffets, all sorts of delicacies, all sorts of pleasures. And they were being told, ah, you, hey, have breakfast over with Jesus, that's fine. Every Sunday, go have your lunch with Jesus. But then the rest of the week, Come eat with us. Be cool. Come on. Like, are you going to be that sort of a religious stick in the mud that you're, you're only going to be at his table? You need to play the field. You're really limiting yourself. I mean, we're all over here benefiting stuff from, from, from all these good things, all these. Why don't, why don't you get, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You need, to, you need to diversify. Many in this church were loving Jesus too. He gives a warning about these people, these strange names, Balaam and Balak and uh, the Nicolaitans. Let me, let me give you a brief, brief rundown of who this guy Balaam and his buddy Balak were. Balaam is sort of an Old Testament counterpart to Judas, the New Testament disciple to Jesus, Judas Iscariot. I, I've always loved this. There's another disciple who gets named, and every time it mentions him, it goes, Judas, in parentheses, not Iscariot, right? Like, like Judas, oh no, not that Judas, like the other Judas. Like, in modern day, the, name, the last name Bin Laden is a pretty common name in the Middle East. Imagine being not the Bin Laden, and you're trying to take a flight, right? And you're on the list, and you have nothing to do with the Bin Laden. That was, that was poor Judas, not Iscariot. Well, Balaam in the Old Testament is kind of, he's kind of an Old Testament version of Judas, because he was willing to betray and sin against God for gain. Part of Judas's motivation for betraying Jesus was because he was thinking, I'll be a disciple of this Jesus. He's got some potential. He's got David Copperfield magic tricks, and he's making a big stir, and they're saying that he's the Messiah. So when he takes over, when he kicks Rome to the curb and takes over and he's the next king, I'll be one of his dudes. And by the way, I'm the treasurer. Judas was the money bag holder. And he was thinking, I'll ride Jesus's coattails to power. And when it seemed that Jesus kept on saying strange, weird things like, yeah, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and get killed. And all the other disciples were like, I don't want to judge them because we probably, we definitely would have made the same mistake. Oh, the son of man must go to Jerusalem and be killed. And all the other disciples were just like, yeah, Jesus is going to go and you're going to kill it in Jerusalem. Yeah. Right. He goes, no, no, I have to die. Judas started going, no, wait, wait, what? Hold on. You're not going to be king. You're, you're going to get killed. You're going to martyr yourself. 
And so he believed he needed to jump off and get out while the getting was good and betray Jesus and get some money out of it. Balaam's like that. He was compromising with the culture. He was compromising with those in power <laughs> for gain. You can see his, his story uh, in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 22 and 31. You can see him mentioned and talked about there. But he was, he was offered wealth by a chieftain, a king named Balak. Because the Israelites were still in the wilderness, but they were already defeating some kings, and they were all on their way into the promised land. And Balak was like, I've heard about these Israelites. They're wrecking junk. They're coming. I need a prophet. I need someone to tell me and give me a blessing. And he found this guy, Balaam. And he offered Balaam great wealth in order to speak false prophecies against Israel. Now listen, Balaam refused he kept on saying, he said a few times, I, I can't say stuff that God's not telling me. I'm tempted to, but, but I'm not gonna. And like he's on his, he's dabbling, he's really, in fact, at one point he's on his way, really mulling it over when the angel of the Lord, by the way, the angel of the Lord, if you want a little bit of numbers here, and right, the angel of the Lord, this is Jesus in person, shows up in the Old Testament, invisibly, and the donkey sees him and stops, and Balaam's like, get moving, donkey. What's wrong with you, Donkey! Donkey! Come on, donkey, right? And, and finally, the Lord lets the, lets the donkey go, uh, I see an angel with a sword. I don't want to move. Why are you hitting me? And then Balaam can now all of a sudden see Jesus. He's like, oh no, right? But here's the thing. Even though he refused to speak prophecies against Israel, false prophecies, later on, he still compromises. Later on, he sees his way to not really oppose God, to not really oppose God's people. He is not off, he's, not, he's not offering a way to defeat them militarily and kill them, but here's what he, he gives Balak advice. He understands something about the Israelites and the commands that God has given to them. And he said, listen, when you go into the promised land, un, unless I say so, until I say so, you're not to marry your sons or your daughters to this, these foreign tribes, these tribes you're going into. Because I don't want your families, it's, it wasn't about race or blood or DNA. It was about, I don't, I don't want you assimilating into their cultures and into their gods. You're not ready for that. You're not ready to intermingle in that way. So you are not to intermingle. You're not to take them as wives. You're not to give your, your daughters away as husbands. And Balak said, see, the problem with Israel is there's too many Israelites in it. So... If you will send your prettiest girls who are really good at getting guys wrapped around their finger, send a bunch of them over to Israel. Because, I don't know, maybe they have a shortage of good-looking women. They've been out in the wilderness for a long time, right? They haven't seen a bath. They haven't seen soap or perfume in quite some time. Some of their, some of their girls are looking a little ragged. So why don't you bathe some of your girls, have them put some, some perfume on, right? Get their nails did. And then send them over. And, and the, the sons of Israel, as Jesus says here, there was a stumbling block in 14. There's a stumbling block put before the sons of Israel. And they intermingled and they began worshiping other idols, other gods too. And they practiced sexual immorality. That's Balak and this chieftain Balaam. And Jesus says, there are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam. You're, they're following his example. They're they're compromising. They're not full out opposing me, but they think they can play two at one time. They can, they can have their cake and eat it too. They can have a wife and a girlfriend on the side. They can have two masters. 
and, and they can't. By the way, last week we, we, I mentioned the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were people who confessed to be Christians, and they did many Christian things, but they were very, very, very compromising in their allegiances, their, their loyalty and devotion. They, they, they would go into the temples, foreign temples, and they would swagger in going, well, we're Christians and these aren't gods. Hey, what's up, bro? Yeah, I'll eat some meat, sacrifice that idol. Ain't nothing but a thing. I believe in Jesus. I take communion, right? And what that does is it confuses the lost people around them and puts a stumbling block, a, a, a wound in the conscience of other Christians who are like, I don't know. That's not, no, we shouldn't do that. And these Nicolaitans were engaging in all sorts of worldly things going, eh, no big deal. Come on, Jesus gives us grace. We can do whatever we want, man. We're free. We're free in Christ Jesus. And they weren't weren't taking Jesus seriously about their loyalty and their admiration, their commitment to him above and before all. And as I said, here's the big problem. No one was calling out their compromise. The church was silent. I don't know if they were like many modern churches who didn't want to call anything out because, well, I don't want to look unloving. I don't want to be mean. I don't want to be a, 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 a fundamentalist religious meanie pants. And I really, I don't want to be divisive. I'll, I'll quietly pray for them. You ought to. But sometimes the Lord's answer to your prayer request when you pray for a wayward brother or sister, the, the way the Lord means to answer your prayer request is as you pray, then he goes, now, now that you've talked to me, now I want you to go and talk to them. Bring to them how you are praying to them and bring them back to me. Urge them to walk in step with the gospel. Go to them and speak with them and let, the wor- let my words, let my commands, let my grace untangle the vines from around their ankles that are ensnaring them and tripping them up. You got to go to them. You got to do something. You have to say something. No one was calling out their promises. So you got the church in Pergamum and people in the church would come to Sunday gathering and sit at the table but they would go out and they would eat at other tables. They would participate as one of them. What tables today for us are we being invited to? As as modern Christians in the world that you live in, in the job that you work at, in the neighborhood you reside in, the friendships that you have, the relationships that you have, what tables are you being invited to eat at? Any table that invites you to gain apart from Christ, any table that would assure you or promise you that you can have the approval, the significance, the pleasure, the love, the safety and security that Jesus alone can give you, that's the wrong table. Listen, before some of you are going, I've read a lot of the Bible and I know that Jesus ate with sinners. I'm not talking like that, right? Uh, Eat with sinners, right? Eat with sinners. But you set the table. Whatever that looks like. I'm not, set the table, like, but we're at their house. I'm not talking, this is a metaphor, right? You set the table. Which way is the influence going? Which way, from what source are the promises being offered? When you eat with sinners, you come to them as a Christian and you bring the promises and the offer of God and salvation, right? But you don't go to their table saying, what do you got? How can you save me? What can you do for me? What can your God, what can your materialism, what can your pleasure, what can your, what do you promise to me? Personal gain at the expense of personal holiness. That's not the table we want to sit at. It's thinking that there's a better table with better people to sit with, serving food quicker than God gives it to you. And food you might think that God is withholding from you. 
And God forbid, food that is better than God, what God gives. This is what happens when Christians are seduced to sit at the wrong table. Let me describe a few versions of this. We want the approval of the culture so we can participate. We can stop being called names, stop being accused of being mean people, bad people, backward people, on the wrong side of history people. So we deny God's word and we take part in lies about human sexuality and gender. We want a seat at the table in our government and our political process. So we throw support behind winking people who say that they're, they're like us and they're God's, they're God's guy, they're God's lady too. And we throw our support behind them and they promise us a seat at the table and they'll vote our way and enact our laws and push policies that we want. All the while they deny God by, they deny God and by proxy they get us to not deny them I'm sorry, they get us to deny God himself by approving of their bad character and their ill will and their bad example. We want a seat at the table, so we'll prostitute our religion for those in power who say they'll, they'll push our agenda forward if we just give to them our simple vote. We want the physical pleasure of happiness, so we sit at the table of substance and sex outside of the means by which God commands us to receive those things because God isn't giving us as much of what we want as often as we want or the kind of happiness, the kind of pleasure that we want. We want to be on the inside. We want to be on the inner circle of power and acceptance and approval. We don't want to be on the outside. We want to be in the know. So we sit at the table amongst gossipers, becoming gossipers ourselves. We want vengeance and we want liberty from our own guilty consciences. So we sit at the table that lets us sit in judgment over all those we believe have hurt us. And maybe they have hurt you. But we sit at the table where we are in judgment. We are now in judgment of them. And now they're no longer simply our friends or, enemy, our friends or family members or even strangers who have sinned against us. Now they are the enemy. Now they are no longer image bearers of God. They're monsters in our minds, and they can do no good, and they only do harm and bad. There's no longer any charity in your heart for the person who has sinned against you, and now you are better than them, and they are not as good as you. We end up at that table externalizing all the sin onto others, and we characterize ourselves as victims of everything. And now at this table, we are excused from obeying the Lord's commands to bless those who curse us, to forgive those who sin against us, and to pray for their good and seek their joy in the Lord, to seek their salvation. We're excused from doing those things because of what a hard life it's been for me, what a hard life it's been for us, and how wrong we've been, how much wrong has been done against us by those people. This list could go on of what it looks like when we're lured to other tables. These enemies who we either want to pacify or we want, them to get a, we want to get them to like us so they'll stop being our enemies. And if we'll just be like them a bit, if we'll just give in a little bit, if we'll compromise, if we'll love them too and love Jesus too, we're going to the wrong tables. Do you know how I'm going to end this list, by the way? This is how I end this list. It's pastors who lead and preach to the church only for money. 
This is, this is what it looks like when men specifically sit at the wrong table. It's pastors who lead and preach to the church only for money because it's mainly indoor work and most of the time there's AC. There's no heavy lifting and because it comes with some sensibility of honor and prestige and the assumption that I'm a holier and wiser and better man, you get a title, maybe reverend, pastor, apostle, bishop. That sort of pastor won't care for the sheep. He's what Jesus calls in John chapter 10, a hired hand. He's not a real shepherd. He's a hired hand. He's not a family member. He's not committed to the owner of the sheep, and he's not committed to the sheep themselves. He won't protect the sheep. He won't correct those sheep. He won't go look for lost ones. He won't pay attention to the sick ones because that's all too much trouble. He'll do as little as he can to get the paycheck. And when wolves show up, he won't stand and hit them or shoot them or get wounded or die at their hand trying to protect the sheep. He's a hired hand. What's he going to do? He's going to run. He doesn't care that much about what the sheep are consuming, what they're doing, what they're, what they're eating, what they're putting into themselves, just as long as these sheep will give him some wool that he can sell at market for money. And that's likely how the church in Pergamum got in the spot that they were in. It's possible that the pastors, the leaders, were asleep at the wheel. They didn't care. They were only doing this for money. I, I don't know, but I think it's entirely possible. And not only the pastors, but the brothers and sisters. See, this is what, as a pastor of this church, this is what I do for a living. When you give to the church and to the Lord with your tithes and offerings, I eat. My wife and children eat. They get their Christmas presents. We live in our house. There's gas in my car. There's gas in my wife's car. There's clothes on our back, right? When you do that, we eat. But I'm not a professional. You see, we're in the wrong spot and we're, we're set up for the same sort of problem when we as a church believe that I'm the pastor, I'm the professional, and so the, the privileged burden, the privileged responsibility, the privileged obligation to see church members corrected, rebuked, encouraged, turned back around, brought back in, walking in step with the gospel, finding themselves protected and in healthy places, that's the job of the pastor, and we shut up and leave it alone. I've used this analogy a million times. There's, there's not a bunk room above this drop ceiling. And there's not, a, there's not a bed with a red telephone. So that when someone's in sin or someone's in trouble or some need needs to be met, my phone doesn't ring where I'm sleeping in it. And I jump up and put a gray jumpsuit on. And I slide down a pole right behind that partition. And I jump in Ecto-1 and I come and save the day as the pastor. Not only were the pastors likely, possibly failing in Pergamum, but the people were failing. They were constantly, probably, like many of us today, asking the same question that Cain asks in the early times of the Bible. Am I, I'm not my brother's keeper. It's not my business. I don't want to be poking my nose in their business. It's really hard. It's really messy. I don't want to be a meanie. I'll turn a blind eye to it. The church itself was failing. Verse 16, therefore, Jesus says, repent. 
repent. There's two types of warning. There's warnings from enemies to enemies. I don't love you, and I'm on my way to kill you. And there's a warning that comes purely and totally out of love. I love you, and death is on its way, and I'm here because I love you. Turn around. You're going the wrong way. Repent. To repent means to turn. And see, for us as Christians, we need to realize what Christian repentance actually means. It's not simply turning away from sin, because if you turn away from sin on another direction, you're going to be headed toward what? Just other sin. Christian repentance is where you turn from your sin, where you turn from an idol, where you turn from something that you would want to get in opposition to the way that Jesus would want you to get it or the kind of thing that Jesus wants you to have. And you turn from that and you turn toward Jesus. Repentance is not simply not doing the sinful or bad thing anymore, but it's turning and having the desires of your heart, the appetites of your soul reoriented toward what Jesus wants you to be satisfied by. Again, I, I spent some time with a brother yesterday, and I, three hours, and it was amazing to hear his salvation story. He's in Florida, mechanic, driving his car, and he realizes, I'm dead and dying. He told me, I'm dead and dying. I didn't understand it, but I knew I was dead and dying. I was like, well, my life is not happy. It's not fulfilling me. What, what I, and he came to realize, as an unsaved person, actually, he was probably saved. He just didn't know it quite yet, right? It was happening right then. But I'm starting to think, do I need more wives? Do I need a different wife? Do I need more money? Do I need to move someplace? And he, and he realized no matter what it was that he could want or aspire to or try to get, he knew that none of it, not different and not more, would actually bring him to life. And so he turns on the radio and there's Christian music, which he never listened to ever before. He's like, oh, well, that's interesting. And then he listened to it again the next day. And then the next day, he, same station, he just... For some reason, like, yeah, yeah, I'll listen to this. Next day, someone's preaching the word. And he becomes a Christian. He prays the prayer. And it's not the words. It's not the magical incantation he said. But as soon as the Lord saved our brother's soul, he became different. He became not just different. He became new. And the Lord, before he started changing this guy's behavior, he changed his appetites it's funny, his story, it was, this part of it was brief yesterday. We spent three hours talking, but this part was brief, but it was very, very, very clear and very awesome about the sanctification, the, the, the newness and the change that happens because he's like, I, didn't, I never wanted to listen to the Bible. I never really wanted to listen to preaching, and I started to. I kept doing it. And then all of a sudden I thought, I've never wanted a Bible, never owned a Bible, but I realized I wanted a Bible. And he went to, the, went to the Bible stories like, excuse me, sir, I'd like to buy a Bible. And the guy was like, <laughs> cool, I, I'm new to Bibles. Can you give me a recommendation? He got a King James Version. That's a good version to start with if you're a new Christian. Still has that Bible today. And then, and then he had never wanted to go to church, never had any interest, no, no family background, wasn't raised like that. All of a sudden he's like, I want to go to church. I want to be part of a church. I need other Christians around me. He had these new appetites and new desires that he did not have. And he only had them because the Lord drew him to repentance, turn from the world and all that he could want and try to get, which he knew would kill him and not fulfill him, turned and he's got a new life, new heart, new desires, new appetites. Therefore, Jesus says, repent. Turn back to me. If not, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
Who is he going to war against? What's the pronoun he uses? Them. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The warning is, if you don't clean the house, I will. If you don't do it, I will. You ever had someone who loved you come and say, listen, this is what you must do, and I'd rather you do it on your terms because you don't want me to come in because I'll do it in ways that you don't want it done. I'll do it right. But here's the opportunity. You have the opportunity. You've made your bed. Don't sleep in it. Unmake and remake your bed. Clean the bed. I'll help you. But if you don't, your bed's got to be made, and I'll come and do it. And I'd prefer, you would prefer, to get to do it yourself with my help, right? See, he gives them the right of the sword. Ancient Rome didn't give cities or local governments the right of the sword. Local governments, local tribes, local kingdoms, vassals of the Roman Empire, they weren't allowed to to execute capital punishment. They weren't allowed to kill people, except in Pergamum. The local city government in Pergamum, non-Roman governmental officials were given the right of the sword, and they were allowed to execute and kill people. They were killing Christians. They didn't have to check in with Rome. They didn't have to put Christians through the Roman courts. They didn't have to wait for some governor or proconsul. They, they could just kill people themselves. And Jesus gives to the church in Pergamum the right of the sword, which is the word of God that cuts out lies and defends truth. The word of God. See, who's speaking to them is the one with the two-edged sword that comes from his what? His mouth. And over and over again, the Bible is described as the sword of truth, the, this, the sword of God's mouth, the sword of God's word. And it kills lies and it defends truth. He says, speak up and correct these Nicolaitans, these, these Balaamites. And I give you the right of so- the sword, not to kill them, but to kill the lie that's killing them. To kill what is earthly and fleshly among you. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, 5, the, the, the command, the urge, the warning, the loving rebuke and encouragement is, therefore put to death what is sexually immoral and unclean about you. Kill your sin. Kill your sin. Get spitting mad. This is the only place where you're free to like give yourself over to rage, to hate Satan, to hate sin, what is earthly, not simply out there. We want to put to death what's earthly and wicked out there. Christians all the time want to do that. He goes, no, put to death what is inside of you. Get up and stab it in your face. That secret hidden temptation that you're flirting with, that secret hidden unrepentant long-term sin that you believe you have on a chain, it's on a leash and you keep it in the closet and when no one can see it, no one can, can know about it, you'll pull it out and pet it believing that you have control over it. It's a, it's a cute little sin. You believe you've got a handle on it. And much like I'm, I'm stealing from a, from a guy out in Texas who uses this analogy all the time. We watch these documentaries, these nature television shows where people keep tigers and lions as pet, pets from cubs. And then they put them in shows and they hang out with them and keep them in the house. And then when the, when the wild apex predator 
who they raised from a cub, then all of a sudden wigs out and rips their throat out on TV. We go, oh my gosh, I did not see that coming. That's your sin. That's the little puppy dog, the little kitty cat of sin that you and I believe we have under control. We have it on a leash. The Lord Jesus says, repent and kill that thing. Kill it. Slay. It's not a puppy. It's not a kitten. It's a wild dog. It's, it's a mountain lion. So speak up and correct the Nicolaitans and the, and the Balaams. Don't kill them. Kill the lie. Repent. Turn down and turn away their lies. Don't put up with what they are doing and saying amongst you and in your city. Repent. Speak up and stop remaining silent. Correct them and insist insist that they believe and turn to the truth. Otherwise, as the Bible in the New Testament later says, or earlier says than this, you're going to have to expel the wicked evildoer from among you. Because they say they are Christians, but their, but their actions and their words put on display that what they say about their devotion and their new life with Jesus is actually a lie. You, you don't tell them they're not Christians. You just have to say, you say you're a Christian. I don't believe it. I don't have any reason. You say you're an apple tree, apple tree, apple tree, but all your, the only fruit coming off of your tree is rotten pears. So I'm, this is an apple orchard. We have to dig you up and put you out. And that doesn't mean you can't come to church, you can't be, but we're going to have to treat you like a non-Christian rather than like a Christian. We're going to love you. We're going to evangelize to you. We're going to tell you about Jesus. And you're going to go, I know the gospel. I know about I said I'm a Christian. Yeah, but you're not living as though you actually are one. We see no evidence of that actual fruit, that change. And we love you. We're not, we're not sitting in judgment and condemnation on you. But now it looks like we're going to have to treat you like non-Christians. And we love non-Christians. But we, we don't interact with and put our trust in and link arm in arm with non-family members. We link with family members arm in arm to come to non-Christians and plead with them to fall on the grace of Jesus. You see, it'd be better for your pastor to come to you with the flat part of the blade, the part that's used for spanking, the part that's used for scooting you along, rather than to find yourself outside of Jesus and his kingdom and his grace, where Jesus has the sword and he uses the pointy end and it enters your throat. To the pastors who won't call the people of God to repentance and holiness, especially the ones, especially the ones who would lead the sheep astray, working for Balak, acting like Judas for personal gain, letting people just it's an act of not, it's not an act of love for a pastor to see brothers and sisters wayward in sin, believing lies, engaging in heresy, paganism, worldliness, witchcraft, just outright immorality and sin apart from God's word. And just to go and just let it happen. That's not an act of love. That sort of permissibility is an act of hatred on the part of any pastor, on the part of any good parent or any good mom or dad. It's just to sit there and your kid's drinking rat poison and you don't do anything about it. That's not a loving parent. That's not a loving pastor. Jesus says it would be better for that guy, for that pastor, if he had never been born. At one point in the Bible, it says, any pastor, any leader who would lead my little ones astray and teach them lies and permit them 
to believe lies and not insist that they hear the word of God and submit to that truth, it'd be better for that guy to tie himself to a big rock and drag it and drop it into the sea. It'd be better for him to have that happen rather than him have to come and face me when I come and ask him what he did with my folks. Jesus gives his church the authority of his word to kill lies and spank God's children. And it'd be better, it'd be better for brothers and sisters to do that rather to come find out you were never a brother and sister in the first place. And the God, the father of those brothers and sisters, now will later have to come to you and deal with you with a different part of the sword. He'll find you at your table. He'll find you at your true table. The one you really want to eat at with the people you really want to eat with, with the sort of pleasures and security and protection and approval that you really wanted. He'll come to a different table where you're sitting. How's the house to be cleaned? How's the church to be straightened out? The very sword of Jesus' mouth. He gives you the right of the sword. He doesn't simply give me the right of the sword. This is not for me and me alone to wield. That's why I preach so long and so loud and so sweaty. Is so that you will be coached, trained, discipled, and hopefully an appetite, a hunger and a desire for the Bible itself to be written on your head and your heart for you to get up and use it and love the word of God for yourself, for your wife, for your husband, for your kids, for your family, for your friends, for your church family. See, I got to tell you, it is a lonely, lonely and demoralizing fight to fight the good fight on behalf of and for my brothers and sisters. And no one else, if no one else wants to help me, I'm the only guy and my sword arm gets tired. And when my sword arm gets tired, guess what? Sometimes I'll start hacking away and accidentally start hurting sheep and I don't want to do that. But if we would watch over one another and call one another to repentance, to check on one another and recognize that we are indeed our brother and our sister's keeper, now we're repenting and now Jesus doesn't have this to say to us. We have an invitation from Jesus to sit at the only table with real food. And we ought to consider before we go to our brother and sister, what table am I sitting at? Because you can't beckon your brother or sister to the right table if you're at the wrong one. This is not, this is not for Christians to sit at another table and go, hey, you need to repent. Okay, I'll come. No, no, no. Don't, don't eat with me over here. There's Jesus' table, but you're wrong. That's the speck and the log in the eye. No. Let's find ourselves at the table with Jesus, looking for the kind of food that he offers, and that's where we beckon our brothers and sisters back to, and that's where we beckon other sinners, lost people to. So verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Last kind of sub-point. Jesus tells you that your gain is in him and not on your own or with Satan. Your gain is with Jesus at his table and not, not with Satan and not with the world, not any other table. See, hopefully you're starting to see a pattern. And in Ephesus, the world and pagan gods were making promises that they couldn't keep. They had no intention of keeping. And Jesus goes, oh, no, no, no. I give the real life. And in Smyrna, they were, they were offering something. Renewal of life and hope and, and a crown and honor. No, no, Jesus goes, no, no, no. They, your city, your culture, those gods, Caesar, Rome, they, they can't actually give that to you. 
You, what you want. Listen, it's not wrong to want those things. It's not wrong to want food. It's not wrong to want approval. It's not wrong to want esteem and honor. Did you know that? It is no sin to want esteem and honor. It's, it's no sin to be thirsty, but it's a sin to drink from the toilet. It's no sin to want and desire and crave approval and love, but you need to get it from the Lord in order that if you're going to receive it from any other human, you'll get it the right way from the right people at the right time. If all the esteem and love and approval that you need is found in Jesus, then no matter who rejects you, you're fine. And you don't crumble. You don't break. No matter who rejects you, no matter who divorces you, leaves you, betrays you, stabs you in the back, you're okay. You're hurt, but you're okay. No matter what is taken from you in this life, your treasure is with Jesus and he, it, your treasure is Jesus. Jesus tells you that your gain is in him and not on your own or with Satan. So don't compromise. They have nothing to give you. The approval of people on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, the approval of worldly lost sinners, friends, family, people at your work, people at your school, their approval can't act. You can't sit at that table. Sit at that table and they'll have no real food. There's no real gain to be found there. So Jesus promises the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it that only you and him know. This, I did a lot of work on these two things, hidden manna and a white stone. And I'll tell you, this amongst many things that now I'm reading and studying in the book of Revelation are, the, are some of the two things, these are two out of some of the things that theologians and interpreters and commentators are all scratching their head the most on. Could be this, could be this, could, could mean this, could be... So I'll do my best. The hidden manna. You need to remember what manna is. Manna, when, when the people of God in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, they've left Egypt and now they're in the what? The wilderness. They're not in a city. They're not farming. They're not planting crops. There's not a lot of food. They're starving. And God says, you're in the wilderness. You have no hope. You can't make any food for yourself. There's no one around for you to trade with. Now you know how much you need me. And now I provide exactly what you'll need. So he sent miraculously in the morning, every morning, food would show up, bread called manna. It was miraculous. It was, it was really tasty. It was kind of sweet. It was like a cracker or bread, and, and the people of God would go out. They didn't have to work for it. They didn't work for it. They weren't allowed to work for it. All they had to do was just go out, and there it was. God gave it to them. And if they, if they took some and they stored some because they weren't sure that God was going to give them what they needed the next day, do you know what happened? They would find that the manna that they had in their jar that they stored yesterday had rotted and had worms, and it was gross. And they were, and they were rebuked for sinning. I'm, I'm trying to be wise. I'm trying to steward this stuff. I'm trying to save up for a rainy day. No, you're, you're trying to rely on your own wisdom when God has already said, and the manna will be there tomorrow too. You thought you could do it yourself. You thought you could, you thought you could contribute and add to God giving you what you needed. There was a double portion every Saturday. It was new every morning. It was a miracle. And every time that it fell and every time that it showed up, God's people were not just supposed to go, they weren't supposed to go, oh, cool, manna. They were supposed to go, again? Again, this keeps happening. How long is this going to keep happening? But this is amazing. 
Our God has heard us. He knows the rumbling of our stomachs and he's giving to us what we need. Jesus says, listen, you're not allowed to do business. No one will sell you food. They're, they're tossing you out of your homes for sticking with me. They're kicking you out of the city of Pergamum. You're being tossed out in the wilderness. If you'll stick with me, if you'll stick with me, you'll find the manna that I give, and you'll only find it in the wilderness. The manna, the food that you need, isn't found in the city, and it's not made by you. the work of your hands as you build your own future. No, no, no. As you suffer for my name, as you find yourself thrust into the wilderness, American Christians, there is truer, greater bread. There's truer, greater food to be found. And Jesus says, you only get it when you stick with me and the world kicks you to the wilderness. They remove you from positions of power. You no longer have influence in society and no longer are Christians found to be part of the religion that's in the majority and now like it's, it's a good thing culturally to be a Christian. No, when you find, as you start to find yourself thrust further and further to the edge of American culture, power, politics, and society, Jesus goes, if you'll stick with me, there's manna there. It's hidden from sight. The worldly person can't see it. The worldly Christian is blinded to seeing this. They want to be on the inside. They want to be in the city. They need the approval. They need the inclusion. I need a seat at the table. Jesus goes, no, get kicked away from that. Get uninvited from the table and come and sit at my table where there's real manna because we have an invitation from Jesus to sit at the only table that has the real food. And that's where the white stone comes in, the invitation. That's how I know we have an invitation because Jesus says, if you'll overcome to the one who conquers, to the one who in faith believes in me, even to suffering, even to starvation, even to death and execution, to that person, I give you a white stone with a new name on it that no one else knows. See, in that day, one of the possible, and I feel most plausible and likely explanations for this reference, is in that day, if you were a great Olympian, if you were an important singer or poet, if you were a, a wealthy person, and there were these garden parties in Pergamum, which were historically just like they were well-known, Pergamum through the best garden parties. People would sit on their terraces and their Hollywood version of their palatial mansions, and they'd invite, invite all the most important people to their house. And the, the host would send out little white stones with that person's name engraved or imprinted on it. And the only way you got past the house guards was if you could show that you had the stone, you had an invitation to be on the inside, to come to the feast with a long table and the great food, all, all the music, all the lighting, it was wonderful. And you were on the inside and you were accepted. You were finally a power player. You knew all the stuff that was important and all the important people knew you and you were making connections. And Jesus goes, as you're kicked out into the wilderness, there's a table that I'm setting in the presence of your enemies. And they're mocking you and laughing at you and telling you, well, that's what you get. We told you what you got to do to be at the big boy table. And so as they, as in the presence of your enemies, as they go, you know, see, you're left without a table. You don't have a seat anymore. Jesus goes, no, you have a seat with me. In the valley of the shadow of death, that's where my table is. For now, that's where my table is and I'm setting it as your, as your enemies are gathered around. And you have an invitation. You get the white stone from me and it's got your name your new name, hidden away, your new identity that I give to you. No one else can fake it. No one else can steal your passport. No one can, no one can, can steal your identity and take your white stone. It's yours. It's got your new name, your, your new identity with Jesus in it. Friends, we have an invitation from Jesus to sit at the only table 
with real food. It's not a table for those who, who love Jesus too. And the table is found in heaven and on earth. It's found with God's people. And the ultimate table is the wedding feast of the Lamb that we'll see later on in the book of Revelation. But I'll tell you, heaven is it's not the place for those who are afraid of hell. It's, heaven is a place for those who love Jesus. And he says, I've got the only table that matters because I'm the one who's there. And I, I offer to you the invitation, the white stone, and I've got the only food that matters. So no matter how you are opposed, threatened, how we are tossed and urged and pushed further out into the wilderness like these people in Pergamum, it's there if we will as a family go, you're sitting at the wrong table. Brother, come. Sister, come. You're out of step with the gospel. You're looking, for, you're looking for the food, the wrong food at the wrong table. Jesus goes, listen, repent and speak up and love one another and get the family. Make sure your brothers and sisters show up at the table. With that said, we're going to enter into the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Feast in communion now.